0: You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. I think most of us have uh, heard that story before, right? We've heard some version of that story. We've grown up listening to it. We've been taught it. We've read it or had it read to us on those uh, board books, you know, and the flip books that we have as kids Um, We've heard different versions of it from different people and different translations at some level pretty much saying the same things And some people disagree with it. Some people say it's just a fable. Some people say it's for real Uh, We here believe it's real. It's the background of where we come from. There has to be a beginning story for us And uh, God has been truthful and and fulfilled all of his promises and always done what he says he would do and has always proven himself to be true and right so far. And so we have nothing but to trust that this is the way it all began. The problem for most of us, though, I think, is that we have heard this story about how it began and we have listened to about how it might have begun from others. And while we hold this to be the true and right story of our beginning as a people, as mankind, Uh, We often relegate it just to being something that happened eons past. We don't like to think about it being something that applies to us today in a real way, maybe that we're struggling with the same things Adam and Eve struggle with. It's much easier to look at that story or listen to that story and think about how if they had not made those stupid choices, we wouldn't be in the problems we're in right now because I wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have done that, right? We wouldn't have made those choices. And it's easy to think those things, but it's really difficult to think about how we're still living in those choices even now, and we're still choosing the same things that they're choosing. And what it ends up doing is it ends up creating a problem in our relationships, particularly in our relationships with the opposite sex, in our relationships at home with our spouses, in our relationships, maybe if you're not married with those you, the one you might be dating or those you've dated in the past or with your fiance. Um, It creates a big problem for us. We get into these he said, she said events all the time. You ever been in one of those before? I won't call it an argument. It's a discussion, a very lively sometimes discussion. Thank you very much for that. It is a discussion. And we get into this he said, she said stuff because basically we live in a fallen world and we are fallen creatures and we are not living out the life we were intended to live in the perfected state of being those mirror images of God. And so we're going to begin a series this week talking about that. In fact, uh, you might have picked up a card on your way out, or as you sat down last week, we have some more cards back here for you to share with your friends to advertise this. We're going to be talking about these relationships for the next five weeks, including this one. We want to encourage you to get ready for it. It's going to be a long trek today. We're going to cover a lot of Scripture, but it's going to be easy to find. Turn to the first page of Scripture, to Genesis chapter 1, and that's where we're going to begin. Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to carry on through Genesis chapter 3, taking some excerpts as we go. Before we get going, let me just pray for us. And let's find out as we go not just where it all fell apart, but where it still all falls apart for us relationally. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for what you are doing in us and through us on a regular basis. Today I beg you to do work through your word in our hearts. For Lord, I am but a man who can make no changes in anyone. But you can change our lives for forever right here in this place. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word, that you would change us and form us according to the image of your son, Jesus, that you would put us on the mission, empower us, and embolden us to do what Jesus did, and that we would just revel in your presence, enjoying you and enjoying one another as we gather this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1-1. I started at the very beginning if we're going to do this, if we're going to do it right. Look at the, just that one verse. You think you know it. Let's hang on to it for a second. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You think that's easy? Got that. God is the creator. He created everything. We're not going to cover the whole creation account, but we know right after this, he talks about creating the sun and the moon, the stars. He talks about creating our planet and dividing uh, the the two different types of of heaven and and earth and the areas in between. And he talks about creating the animals. He talks about creating humans. We'll get to that in a second. The part I want you to understand is, is that if someone or something... Some entity is big enough and great enough to create something in a systematic format to where it's a system that is cohesive and works together and depends on each other for the system to work. It has to be a designed thing that is by someone or something we would consider to be super intelligent, and it would have to be something that was done on purpose and not something by happenstance. Nothing in this world happens by happenstance that creates systems of logic and cohesiveness. It just doesn't. And I can get with you and we could talk and argue about uh, those things if you would like. My point is not to do that today. My point is to say it for this reason, that God has created everything that he has created for a specific purpose and he has an eternal plan for everything he has created, including us, including us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The simple statement, that sums it all up. And He goes through and says, and God spoke and this happened. And God spoke and this happened. And God the creator spoke and this happened. God the sovereign of the universe spoke and this happened. God said a word and it happened. God spoke and the mountains rose up out of the oceans. I mean, we, we have it all spoken by God here in chapter 1. And then we end up in chapter 1, verse 26. Pick up with me. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. First of all, before I go any further, I have to say, did you notice the Trinitarian statement that just happened? Let us make man in our image. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. I don't fully understand it because I'm a finite being created by an infinite God, and so I don't have any words to say that would help clarify that any further. We could talk and give illustrations, but they would all fall in on themselves with paradoxical statements. What I do know is that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one. One God, three persons. I don't get it beyond that. But here we see a Trinitarian statement. It didn't just have to start here. Go back and look at verse 1 again. In the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the very beginning, we see conversation to us from the narrator talking about who God is as God delivers this, maybe through Moses. We're not sure exactly who wrote this. We think it was Moses as it was delivered to him from God. In this, we see Trinitarian language even at verse 2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And here in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, men and women equal in value, equal in essence, with different roles, just as we were created in the image of the Trinity in which all persons of the Godhead are equal in value, equal in essence, but with different roles, okay, to mirror reflect who God is. So he says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created him, created them. Now, here we are. He didn't just say man as in mankind again. He said male and female to make sure we understand in the grand scheme We together, men and women, always intended to be seen as one in this unit, as a reflection of who God is in our various roles, equal in value, equal in essence, different roles we've been given because of our creator who himself is three persons in one God and each one having different roles that he might take upon himself. God the Father as the source of all things, God the Son as the Redeemer of all God's people, and that by Him and through Him and for Him were all things created, and in the Holy Spirit who acts on behalf of both of them to indwell within us, connecting us to the Father, making it possible to have Him live within us and to be connected with Him even when Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. We therefore, as humans, men and women, together rightly image God to be an equal in value and essence. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So he looks on this, right? He's, he sees this as it's a statement here. Chapter 1 is kind of this overarching statement of all things that were created in this kind of a... We're not even sure if it's necessarily chronological. It probably is chronological, but it could just be categorical and how it was created. We don't know how it was actually done. It could have been a day. The word for Hebrew... I'm going to mess some of you up here. The word for Hebrew actually... When you use that word for day, it can mean just like our word for day. It could mean it could be a twenty-four hour period. It could mean an eon or epoch of time, like back in the day. Okay. It could be in this we don't know, so you don't want to nail me down to saying one or the other young earth, old earth. I don't think it matters to me. It's not about that here. It's about redemption in Jesus. That's what this is about. It's not a history book. It's a it's a redemptive, a redemptive history book. That's what it's about. And I can sit down and argue with the best of us, you know, we could we could talk about it after this if you want to do it over lunch. But right now, what we need to see is God created all of us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, to be in charge of, have dominion over, rule over creation, together, men and women. And after he created all things, including men and women, God declared all of his creation to be what? Good. It was good. Let's pick it up in Genesis 2, 5 through 9. Just in between there is where he's talking about the seventh day he rested, And the man became a living creature. So we see God first demonstrating his kingship over everything by saying, let it be, boom, it does, right? Like, let this thing happen, and it does. And now we see him getting intimately, relationally involved with the apex of his creation, with humanity. We see it again. I'm going to read it again. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. This is a much more intimate thing that's happening. It's, it's a much more relational thing that's happening. God, who is transcendent, created the earth, and then he imminently comes and creates man. It says, "...and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." Then we jump on down to verse fifteen. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We know this, right? Dun dun dun. Right, that's the part where we're like, Oh, that's the thing, watch out for that when it's coming back, right? Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So what we had in chapter 1 is this big overarching declaration of all things that were made. In chapter 2, we get down more into this part about humanity and how things came about, right? And we see here, he says, there's not a helper. I need to make a helper for him. It's not good that he's alone. In other words, God had created all things by this point. And he goes, something's not right. I need one more thing to be done and a helper for this guy. So now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So here we go again. He looks around, right? He says, there's nothing here for this guy. Doesn't seem to be a good helper. So God lovingly puts Adam to sleep. He doesn't just rip a rib out of him, right? He knocks him out, pulls the rib out, fixes his flesh. He takes that rib and he forms a woman out of it. Now, so guys, just so you understand this, right? Everything else was done in all of creation, and God says, Something's missing. I got to do one more little thing. And he created women. And that was the finishing touch on creation. This is how we should see the women around us the finishing touch. Like an artist looking at this painting where everything's perfect, he goes, he needs one more thing to make it really perfect. Here, boom, this last thing, woman. That's how we should view the women around us. This is how we should treat the women around us. And then Adam wakes up, verse 23. He brought her to the man. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, you don't see it here. It's hard to tell it in the English, but in the Hebrew, this is more of a melody. It's more of a poem, probably put to song. This guy, would have been looking at all these creatures being like, that's not it. Elephant, that's not it. Cow, no way, you know. Monkey, uh, nope, not going to do it. Dog, not good friend, but nope, not going to be the helper I need, right? Looking around, and finally he sees her, and he begins to burst into song as he sees her. What would it look like if we ran home every day, guys, and walked in and burst into song when we saw them, right? <laughs> Poetic as it might be, some of our wives don't want us singing to them. Adam sings whether she wanted it or not, and to put it in the only way I can say it that makes it seem a little bit similar as he looks at her and goes, man, whoa, man, like woman, that's your name, I am man, right? did not do that in the Hebrew exactly, but best we can get to it. He's overwhelmed. And then it says right here, this little bit, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. We'll deal with naked and not ashamed in a minute. First, let's deal with this. The result of this whole creation is God's gracious covenant of marriage is birthed out of these first people being brought into relationship and being called what's one flesh. That means two people who remain individuals are now united in such a way that they no longer do things in life that say, I'm going to do this for me, or I'm just going to go do this thing over here. It's I'm going to do everything I do in the context of my relationship with my significant other, my spouse. All my decisions are going to be made that way. How I care for people is going to be that way. I'm going to do all my decisions for the betterment of the one flesh, united, two of us together, becoming one. And we know God created marriage, and if God created all things and created us, he knows how it's meant to be, and he means it to be a particular way, and his way is always going to be better than our ways, as we'll find out shortly. And the narrator reveals something really great for us here, this last little verse, when he says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. If I say naked enough, some of you will start getting lower in your seat, because we don't like to hear the word naked. But it's in the Bible, a lot actually. And here it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. Some of you get embarrassed when you hear the word naked in public? I guess you could raise your hand, but you wouldn't do that either. It says they were naked. They had no clothes on and they were not ashamed. He reveals that to us that the beauty of intimacy before the fall of man was that this man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed? There's no shame. There's no hiding. There's no hatred of body. There is no barrier between the two, relationally or emotionally or physically or intellectually or spiritually. They were in each other's presence, in the fullness of their presence, enjoying one another, seeing the beauty God had created, and there was no shame. That is good. can't read that without stopping there and being like why did he tell us that you know why because this was being written for israel who's after the fall is now going it's all messed up why is it all messed up well here's what happened and here's why it feels messed up because they were naked and had no shame and we're the opposite of that then we go on to genesis 3 this is where it all falls apart Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Do you see the change here? Look at the change here. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Pause. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Major plot shift. Something's about to go down. There's a big hitch here we should be paying attention to. He said to the woman, the serpent, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, a couple of quick things. Some of you in here are biblical scholars. I know it. I talk to you sometimes. And I hear about all the things you're reading and studying. Just let me say this. Um, The serpent was lying on purpose. We have no proof that Eve is purposely being deceptive here by adding something to the text. God didn't say nor shall you touch it in the text we have. He could have said that later on. What we do know is that later on in the Hebraic thinking, if something was really, really bad, you shouldn't even get close enough to touch it, much less participate in it. So that could have been where the language comes from. We have no idea. I don't see anything in here that makes it look like that Eve is trying to be malicious at this point. She hasn't done anything wrong at this point. So some people make a big deal about that. I don't think there's anything to make a big deal about. Good? For the rest of you that don't care, we're back in the game. Ready? Okay, here we go. She said, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Listen, guys. guys. Who was with her, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is where it all falls apart in the story, and I would argue this is where it all falls apart even still today. This is where it falls apart for us today. The serpent lies, tempting Adam and Eve to think God had not been liberal with his blessings. He hadn't given them enough, right? He kind of held back. He was actually hiding the best from them. And he posited to them that they could be like God. The problem is they were already like God. They were made in his image. They missed the whole point, right? He wasn't just tending them to be like God. He was tempting them to place themselves in authority over God instead of them recognizing that God will always be in authority over us. It's an insanity cycle that begins here we call sin, where they step out into a world saying, oh, I can be like God, I can be in charge of myself and be wise, I don't need God to tell me what's wise and what's good. And that's a falsity that we never recover from until Jesus comes back. John Mark Comer, he talks about this in his book called Loveology. It's a good read. He says, the lie is that God, this is the lie, that God isn't our lover, that he doesn't love us. That he's not after our joy. That's the lie from the devil. That we can't trust God. That God's way isn't the best way. That we know better than God. That's the lie. That's the lie. Adam and Eve rebelled against not a rule of God in and of itself, but they rebelled against their relationship with God. They said, oh, you've been telling us what's good and right and what's best for us. We know better. We're going to do this because now we're really going to know what's good and best for us. You've been holding us down, God. They abandon relationship with God in order to become gods of their own universe in a little g, which is really faulty because they never can be, right? And we see the benefit or we see the result of that later on as they're kicked out of the garden. Their choice was predicated upon their decision to break fellowship with God and trust in themselves more than they trust in God. That's what we do every day. We are making the same decisions Adam and Eve made every day either passively, I don't mean by doing nothing, I mean by passively, by not talking about it, thinking about it, we just act upon it, or by aggressively doing it. We make the same decisions every day. So let's not just think that this is just some story of a couple that lived eons ago. This is the exact same choice that we face every day. Here's the question, of which tree will we eat this time? We eat of all the things that God has given us as good, Or will we go to the things that we know destroy our relationship with God because we think we know better? That's the question for us every day. Will we believe the lie? Do we know better than the creator who has made us to have joy to the fullest? I mean, he's the creator, right? His ways are always good, but the ways of the serpent are lies and they bring death. And yet we choose those ways all the time. We know it brings destruction. We've watched it in our own lives. We've seen the results of our choosing things against God. We know how it goes, and still we do it. We kid ourselves. We pretend in ourselves. We'll, We'll be in the midst of knowing we're about to make a bad choice, knowing we're about to go down a route we shouldn't be going. And in our head, we will compartmentalize that. We'll act like we're not doing that. We'll distract ourselves over here and do the thing. And then we feel bad about it, and then we do a little penance by kind of beating ourselves up, and then as it rolls back around, we feel good, we feel cleansed of that, and we're not going to do that again, never do that again, I'm sure they are not going to do that thing again, oops, just do the thing again. And this is the cycle of sin that we live in. Even good things, if they draw us away from God, are sinful things. These are the choices we make, just like Adam and Eve. Every day we make a choice to believe one, either God or the enemy, and we deny the other. So who will you choose to believe today? Who will you choose to deny today? Because you may think that just by going through your day and making all these choices on your own that you're not denying God, but if you're not in His presence, asking Him what He wants, following His ways actively, then you are denying God by not even addressing Him. That is denying God. When we choose to believe the enemy, we end up living the results of the fall of Adam and Eve over and over and over again. So let's look at the results. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They hid themselves from his presence among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who's told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. There's a lot here to unpack, right? Let's start off by looking at the first few things. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Like Adam, we all too often try to hide ourselves from God. You ever seen kids do this? They think if they can't see you, you can't see them? My favorite is to watch my youngest ones play hide and go seek, and all they're hiding is their face. You know, they're like sticking it behind their drawers, I still see them sticking out. And for hunting, putting that out, Raccoons, you ever seen raccoons try to hide when you're trying to light on them? Oftentimes, you know what they do? Anybody here know what they do? They do this. That's what we do. We hide from God. We think he won't see what we're doing. We think he doesn't know what we're doing. We think if we go off and hide or hide what we've done, he'll never know. And we know that's not true, but we do it all the time. We cannot hide from God. What you are doing, what you have done, you cannot hide it from the Lord. He already knows. He knows before you do it that you're going to do it. He already knows that. You cannot escape that. He is aware. And just like the grace that he shows them here, he's showing you and I grace today by still coming out and saying, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? He didn't have to ask them that. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He's all-knowing. He doesn't need to ask them that. That's because he's beckoning them to step back into a relationship. Don't hide and be quiet. I'm going to ask you a question. Respond to me. Where are you? Even when we try to hide from God, he doesn't respond with outright anger or wrath, which he could. He is right and just as soon as they sin against him to strike them down dead and destroy them. But he doesn't. He extends grace. Where are you? And they respond. Look what they say. I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What comes from the fall? Fear. We fear somebody's going to know, somebody's going to see us, somebody's going to be aware of what we've done. We're afraid of that, and so we hide everything. Let me tell you right now, we will not be the church we're meant to be if we hide all of our sins, if we hide all of our struggles, if we hide everything we go through. It will not be the case. You will not be who you're meant to be in Christ if you hide all your junk. God doesn't get glory if you're perfect, because you're not. It's a lie from the enemy and from you if you act that way. In our small groups, in your relationships, in your friendships, you've got to be real with people about your struggles, your hurts, your hang-ups, your faults, your sins. You need people that love you that will also kick you in the rear when you need that too. Who will pick you up when you fall down? Who will hold on to you? Who will pray over you? Who will lead you and walk with you when you don't have the strength to do it yourself? And you can keep it all in and think you've got it all together. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna wind up on the last day, of God saying, Depart from me, I never knew you. Hey, I did all this stuff for you, he says, I never knew you. You did it all on your own. You didn't need me, you didn't want me. Why do you want me now? It'd be the biggest travesty, the biggest upset of our lives. Not only do we try to hide from God, fearing him and attempting to hide our shame, but we refuse to take responsibility for our actions too. That's what happens right here, right? We won't take responsibility to admit our sin. Look at Adam and Eve. This is crazy. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. This is where all the guys go, if it wasn't for you, honey, Right? If it wasn't for you, Eve's descendant, we wouldn't be in this mess. Oh, no, 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 no. Not a, if When you do that, you're doing what Adam does here. He's not just blaming Eve. Look a little bit closer in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she deceived me. He's pointing the finger at God saying, this is your fault. That's where wisdom takes you, right? This is your fault. You gave this woman to me who deceived me, and I ate this thing. And then she did this thing to me, not taking responsibility. Man, we've got to start taking responsibility for who we are in the faith and who we are in our homes. Taking responsibility means admitting when you've done wrong, repenting before your wives, repenting before your children, repenting before the Lord, repenting to some other guys that will hold you accountable and saying, I have failed and I'm tired of failing. I want to do right by the Lord and give him glory and honor by showing people that I am broken over my sin and I don't want to do it anymore. That's the only way we're going to see it. That's what we're called to be. Otherwise, we're just like this. We won't say it out loud like that. We'd never do that. But all together, we just act like we don't have any problems. This isn't Adam holding fast to his wife. This isn't the two acting in one flesh. This is every man for himself. Every woman for herself. Eve does the same thing, ladies, right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. We've got to take responsibility. I'm we'll get back on the men for a second. This isn't the week about men, by the way, but I'm going to hit on it for just a minute. Are you ready? All I heard was man, one guy, some women. Guys, are you ready? Good. Let's hear it, man. I want to know we're ready for it because we got to step up. This church, as many women as we have that love the Lord and will pursue the Lord, will never go where it needs to go if the men don't do it too. It is up to us, men, as well as the women, to step up and do what is right. It is the right time for us to learn how to walk with the Lord and walk with our families. Let me say it some other ways. It's going to feel like it hurts. I'm preaching at me here. Okay, I'm first to admit, this is where I fail. How do we live in our days in our homes right now, guys? Are you stepping up to lead faithfully in your home in the same way that Jesus has loved us? By loving your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, are you standing idly by or sitting idly by in your recliner as your home burns down around you? They put it a different way. Are you sitting there when you know your wife needs you to do something for her? Are Are you waiting for her to take care of that problem before you get up to do it? Are you the one that knows what she really needs when she's saying these things to you, but you act like you don't understand or don't hear it so you don't have to be responsible for it? Are are you the one that's not taking the responsibility? Listen, I'm taking it even further. Are you taking responsibility by caring for your wife, by leading her into intimacy with her heavenly Father? That's our responsibility. That's our place. We are the ones to lead our families to the Lord daily. I'll be honest with you. I got a wife that is more of a prayer warrior than I probably will ever be. Like, she would get mad at me for saying this about her, but the Lord wakes her up in the middle of the night to pray for people. And I'm like, am I just too heavy of a sleeper, Lord? You know? Like, the intimacy level is high there. So I have a hard time leading my wife when I feel like she knows the Lord in a deeper way than I do sometimes. That doesn't change the fact that I'm responsible to lead my family. That's just the way He's made it. Not because I'm greater or better, equal in value, equal in essence, different roles. So I'm to lead my family to Jesus. It seems, though, instead of leading our families into intimacy with our Heavenly Father and leading our spouses into intimacy with our Heavenly Father, we're more worried about getting some intimacy with her in the last hour of our day than we are about leading her to Jesus. And then we wonder why she isn't happy with us when we do that, when we haven't acted very much like a person that loves Jesus toward her for the other 23 hours of the day. I'm telling you, if we loved our wives like Christ loved the church, they would be a lot easier in how they have to love us. Right, ladies? I know you don't want to put your husband down. You're not saying you are. Your husbands are great. I'm the only one in here that's a real sinner. I'll take it. Getting angry when she doesn't throw herself at you, getting angry when she doesn't treat you the way you deserve to be treated. You're dead, brother. Jesus died on the cross for us, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ that lives in us. The life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. It's not about us anymore. It's about serving others in this way. Listen, we've got a mixed up idea about what love is. Love isn't just some overwhelming emotion where you fall into love and you're carried away by this great emotion that you feel all romantic with. That's not, that's not, that's love of the movies. That's not love of scripture. That's not love that abides and lasts forever. Love is not just a feeling. It is a feeling. It's also an action. It's a noun and a verb. You don't just wake up in the morning and feel like you love people. You know what I'm saying? Not many of us do. If you do, let's have a conversation. I need to get some of that. I need to learn how to do that better. I wake up and I'm kind of mad sometimes because the sun came up. I'm not ready. I love the sun like Tyler was saying. I'm glad it's sunny today, but I wasn't ready for it to come up, you know, when it did like yesterday. Today it was different. It was dark. But I I get angry at things. I don't wake up in love. It's an action. You get up and love somebody with action. And what do you mean by that? I mean this. God's definition of love. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'll give you an easier way to say it. And this is love, God telling us. This is what love is. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paying the debt of sin that we owe. Dying on the cross in our place. Becoming our substitute to die so that we could have life eternal for us. That's love. Him doing that for us. Not that we love him. Not an emotion It is an emotion, but it's not just an emotion, right? God's love for us is a self-giving love. That's his definition of love. You may think I'm crazy. Let me put it in context. 1 John 4, 10 and on. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Or how about the most famous, John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's self-giving love. That's what love is. It's giving, giving, self-giving, giving yourself over. Or Romans eight thirty two. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all us. Gave him up for all of us. This is the kind of love that we see in scripture. This is the kind of real, deep, abiding, unadulterated, ongoing, eternal love that we are to have. So are you choosing to love your spouse every day through self-giving like Jesus? Ladies, I'm talking to you too here. Are you doing that? Are we doing that well? I think we all have room for growth. Are you choosing to love God this way every day through giving of yourself to him like Jesus did for us on the cross? Here's what resulted from Adam and Eve's rebellion. Look at it with me, Genesis 3, 14, and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and she shall bruise his heel." Anyway, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel, he says the serpent. Listen. Did you hear it there? I'm going to say it one more time. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Did you hear it? This is where the gospel comes in. This is good. This is the good part here. This is where the story brightens up a little bit. In the midst of what looks to be a victory for the enemy, God delivers a crushing blow He delivers a promise to the enemy and a promise to us too. It's a promise of hope and grace in Jesus. Listen, when he says that right there, it says, listen, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, which is singular, he shall bruise your head. You will bruise his heel." It's some interpretation there, right? Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? How about Hebrews 2? Therefore. The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Or Romans sixteen twenty, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Do we hear it? This is what he's saying back here when he read this text. And he says... He shall bruise your head. He's going to stomp on the head of the snake and kill it, even though he bruises his heel. When Satan wanted to kill Jesus, he put him on that cross through leading others to do all these things. And when they did, they thought they had won, but all he did was bruise the heel. And Jesus rose in victory over Satan's sin, death, and hell, crushing the enemy forever. The gates of hell have been burst wide open. The enemy has no more stronghold on those who are in Christ. He has won the victory. It's over. Now, we're still living in the after effects that are not yet here. Jesus has not yet come back to make it widespread, but there is no hold on us anymore. The problem is we still keep going back to Genesis 3 and drinking from the same slop that we've been eating from most of our lives. Hear me right when I say this. Look at it with me. Chapter 3, verse 16 of Genesis. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I'm not even going to go there right now. We'll hit that in a couple of weeks. Look what he says here. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Or in other words, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. Both those are good translations. Derek Kidner, a good commentator on Genesis, says this. To love and to cherish in this moment becomes to desire and to dominate. So what does that word contrary mean? How do we understand it when he says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's not too hard to look it up because in Genesis 4-7, right down the street here, We see with Cain, God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, you must master it. It is trying to master you. You must master it. To put that back in the context of Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be to master your husband and he shall rule or domineer over you. That stinks. We go from mutual love, mutual respect, equal in value, equal in essence, ruling the earth together, different roles, but all in the same value to where now the woman is going to want to master her husband and the husband's going to want to domineer over the woman. That's horrible, isn't it? That's exactly what happens when we argue with each other. That's exactly what happens when we cut down our spouse in front of other people. That's exactly what happens when we try to hurt their feelings on purpose. That's exactly what happens whenever we do anything that is to the detriment of our relationship with our spouse. If we would only, only look back and say, it is not I, but Christ in me. I'm going to love you like Christ loves the church and gave myself up for you. I'm going to give myself up like Christ did on the cross. It's all broken, and all of us are broken. But listen, today I tell you, we don't have to be broken anymore. Jesus has made a way. In Christ, we can find freedom from our brokenness. In Jesus, we can have hope for true, abiding, unadulterated, eternal love that does not give over to broken hearts. This is where it all fell apart, Genesis 3. And where it all still falls apart for us if we let it, but it doesn't have to. In Jesus, we have hope. We can have healing and restoration for our relationships. Let's finish it out right here, Genesis 3:17. seventeen. I'm not going to stay here very long, we can't for time's sake. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. In other words, you're going to die now. You could have had the tree of life. Now you're going to die. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Even there, grace. Grace. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the Worked the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, because of their fall into depravity and sin, death has entered the world and is coming for us all. But Jesus came to deal with death, he crushed death on the cross. And because of his self giving for us on the cross, death has been defeated. That is good news. Let us praise the king who humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross so that he could win us back into relationship with him. Again, it's about relationship. Let us give glory to our older brother, the firstborn among many, who gave his life for ours on the cross so that we could enjoy relationship with him forever as one family in one flesh. A family for families, right? And although some creature or creatures had to die in order to provide Adam and Eve with clothes of skin, Jesus died in order that we might be clothed in his righteousness, despising the shame and bringing us forgiveness for the past and hope for the future in him. And now, clothed in his righteousness, we no longer have to fear standing before a holy God in our nakedness, in our shame. It's been washed away as far as the east is from the west, if you're in Christ, if you put your hope and faith in Him. But now we can approach His throne with boldness and find mercy at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that a good day today? That's a good message to hear, to be reminded of. And we can now love one another because of that, in the same self-giving way to once again find relational peace, not just with God, but with Him too, and with one another even now, to the praise of God and His glorious grace. Look, what would it look like if we started loving our spouses in that way? What would it look like if we lived redeemed lives in a way that said, not I, but Christ in me? What what would it look like in our community if we as a church decided we're going to love our spouse in this crazy, radical way that people think I'm nuts because all I do is give, 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 give? And man, I find joy as I love as the way Christ has loved me. And I experience some of that love from the giving in. Now, what would it look like if instead of sitting on the couch waiting for my spouse to do that thing, I got up and did it for them? What if instead of hearing what they're saying and letting it go in one ear and out the other, I do something about it? Or I listen like I care because I want to care. What if I got up in the morning and I prayed for God to put love in my heart for that person the way that he's loved me by sending me Jesus? Man, it could change everything about our lives. And it could change everything about this church. And men, no matter how well our wives love us, if we don't love them back like Christ has loved the church, we will fail as a church. We have to step up. We're going to hit that next week really hard. I've already stole too much thunder from next week's sermon. And what if we just asked the Lord today for one thing? God, would you reveal to me today what I need to repent of today so that I might love my spouse like you have loved us, so that I might love you like you have loved me by sending Jesus to die for me on the cross. Let me pray that for us. Father, we need you. We have failed and failed and failed, and we've done some things that aren't failures, but Lord, we are unable to do it continually and regularly, but Lord, you can do it in us. But it starts with you revealing to us where we need to repent. It starts with you telling us what we need to do different, you showing us. So today I pray that if you haven't already, that you would prick our hearts and that you would let us understand where we have darkness, where we have deceit, where we have believed the lies of the enemy, and that we would no longer go to the tree for wisdom apart from you, but we would go to you and enjoy you and find that you are our wisdom, you are our strength. As we lean into you, we can find boldness, we can find joy and strength so that we can then live our lives in a way that would show that love to others by self-giving continually for your glory, for the betterment of our spouse, or our friends, our co-workers, and for our own joy. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.